From Refinery29, this is Strong Opinions Loosely Held. I'm Elisa Kreisinger, and welcome to our special post-election emergency episode, Easing Out of the Bubble. When Donald Trump won the election two weeks ago, you could hear both the East and West Coasts yelling, How did this happen? No one we knew had actually voted for Trump. Sure, there was that friend of our parents on Facebook, but most of us thought that Trump was a joke, a great Alec Baldwin character. That if Hillary knew how, she would have done it already, period, end of story. I won the debate, I stayed calm, just like I promised. And, and an easy foe for our feminist, ready-for-action figure, Hillary Clinton. Yes, more people voted for Hillary, but Trump won the election, thanks to the support of white men and women in states like Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. Who are these white people? And why did they vote for Trump? How did this happen? So many of the social movements that have been so transformative, like the civil rights movement, the anti-war movements in the Vietnam era, the gay and lesbian movements, the women's movements, all these movements challenged traditional power and authority. But in particular, what they were challenging is white male centrality or white male authority. So Trumpism is a backlash movement against the decentering of white males over the past several decades. That's Jackson Katz. My name is Jackson Katz. I write books. My most recent book is called Man Enough, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and the Politics of Presidential Masculinity. I called him up after the election to get his opinion on who to blame for this. You know, if we were to blame someone. I think overwhelmingly the problem is white men. It should be noted, Jackson is a white man. When I first heard the slogan, Make America Great Again, the first thing I thought was, what he's really saying is, put white men back on center stage again. The Trump campaign from the beginning knew that their central goal was to lock down the white male vote. And they did it successfully. They won the white male with college education vote by 54 to 39%. So the responsibility for Donald Trump being president ultimately is on the shoulders of white men. A huge part of his appeal, political appeal to his base and to his supporters was that he was a quote-unquote real man. And if you listen to supporters of Donald Trump and you ask them, why do you care about him so passionately? Why do you support him so much? They'll say things like, he's got balls. He's a man. The only man who has balls enough to tell it like it is. Women in Iowa love Mr. Trump because they love a real man. He's not a bitch. He's a real man, right? Yes. It was all about his manhood. There's no doubt about it that white identity is a central part of Donald Trump's appeal. It's also not just white identity, but it's a certain kind of gendered white identity, a masculine or hyper-masculine, aggressive white masculinity. In the Republican primaries, the way that he went through his Republican opponents, one by one, was to attack their manhood. Low energy, Jeb Bush. Low energy is a better term. Low energy, which is obviously subtextually saying that he's not a testosterone-driven, aggressive man, not aggressive enough. 
little Marco, you know, about Marco Rubio talking about his height and his and his physical stature. Wait. Don't worry about it, little Marco. Gentlemen. His verbal bullying was the way that he would both belittle his opponents and lift himself up. And each time he did it, while some of us were horrified and were saying, this is taking American politics to a new low by being aggressive and by being over the top in his bullying verbal aggression, it actually gained him support, which is a big part of how he ended up winning the presidency. It turns out, running on a platform of being a hyper-masculine, quote-unquote, real man, isn't anything new. The Republican Party has been able to win the votes of the, the vast majority of white men over the past 40-plus years, in part by marketing themselves in the post-civil rights era, because there's so many racially coded ways in which the Republican Party has reached out to, to white voters. But they've also marketed themselves as the party of real men. If you're a real man, if you're a strong man, if you're tough, you, you understand the need in the dangerous world to get tough, then you're, you would be a Republican in that discourse. And Republicans for the last 40 years have been running on that persona. Sometimes they put forth candidates like Mitt Romney in 2012 who couldn't embody that. The turnout was depressed. We lost with Mitt Romney and John McCain because they were nice, polite gentlemen. We would have lost with Milktoast Jeb Bush or John Kasich, but Trump, Trump's a warrior. All of that crude talk by Trump makes him the perfect guy to burn Washington, D.C. down. The election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, it's more complicated than just one factor, but one of the factors was he was able to present himself as the cowboy riding in from the West who's going to get tough, and so what we needed is a real man back in the White House. That appeal predated Donald Trump, but Donald Trump uh, played with it and ran with it and took it to a new level. So where do women fit into that narrative and into that equation? That's me on the phone with Jackson. I wasn't crying there. I actually have a cold. Well, this is a complicated question, the role of women. And it's really white women we're talking about because overwhelmingly women of color voted for Hillary Clinton. He did get 53% of the white women's vote. The segment of the white women's vote that he got the most was working class white women or women without a college education. Of course, feminist sociologists have been talking about and thinking about and studying the white women's vote and white women's voting patterns for years and years and years. But it's clear is that female solidarity across class is not as strong as you might think it would be. Um, again, this is all about white people because we can't say women without making it clear that women of color were overwhelmingly supportive of, uh, of Hillary Clinton and an inclusive agenda. One thing we have to be clear on is that there's intense pressure on a lot of white women in communities, especially uh, you know rural communities, red state communities, to support Trump because if you don't support Trump, you're seen as, in a sense as a race traitor. A lot of feminist sociologists have been writing about that for years, that white women end up often supporting what the, the white men in that community are doing, even if they don't want to necessarily, but because they're, the pressure on them to conform to what was identified as a community interest or, a, again, a white solidarity interest. So now I began to see why so many people were tweeting that white women hated people of color even more than they liked having rights to their own bodies. That's one explanation. Some women are politically attracted to this notion of security defined through brute strength. In other words, we're going to get tough with our enemies. We're going to, you know, he, we're going to bomb the 
S-H-I-T out of ISIS. And a lot of women, white women in particular, can be brought into this idea that the way to protect yourself and your children is through tough man in charge who's going to get real tough with those bad men. So I think that's part of the conversation as well. This idea of brute strength being a somehow better approach to leadership seems so foreign to me. Also, I had no idea that Democrats and liberals were seen as feminine, while Republicans and those on the right were seen as more masculine. Why is everything so traditionally gendered? Oh, it's totally gendered. Take the issue of crime, for example. The, the binary that people refer to discussions about crime is, are you either tough on crime or soft on crime? Obviously, the Republicans present themselves as being tough, and they present the Democratic side as being soft. What tough on crime got us was mass incarceration. What tough on crime got us was this lock them up kind of mentality and take away alcohol and drug counseling and education and all the things in, in prison and in the system that would help people. All that stuff was seen as being soft, right? All that was seen as being on the Democratic side of the house, which is another way of saying it was seen as feminine in the masculine feminine binary. The right would say, and, and to this day, will say that liberals and progressives and feminists coddle criminals. Instead of getting tough with them, they coddle them. Well, who coddles in the real world? So in other words, it's another feminizing metaphor to make it seem as if Republican equals strength and masculine, Democrat equals softness and feminine. And while, of course, some of that's totally silly and ridiculous, because we know women are every bit as strong as men, and, and the idea that masculine strength, like chest-beating strength, is the only definition of strength, is an incredibly narrow and limited definition that some of us thought that we had left behind decades ago, and, and it was a discredited, sexist definition, it still has currency with millions of Americans, because millions of Americans take seriously the idea that Donald Trump is a strong leader, and that his chest-beating verbal aggression, threats of punishment, threats of bombing, is somehow proving his strength. When we hear somebody who's running for president, who's clearly not read, who's clearly not understanding the complexity of the issues that he's talking about, we're kind of embarrassed by that. But a lot of his supporters like that, and they actually think that it makes him, quote unquote, more authentic or more real, as contrasted with a Hillary Clinton who's an intellectual or a Barack Obama who's an intellectual. There's this dichotomized thinking that somehow there's one, it's either you're a person of action or you're a thinker or an intellectual who reads. And so Donald Trump's anti-intellectual quality is actually a political strength of his. This is deeply rooted in American uh, history, in particular among men, where the idea among certain groups of men is that if you actually are thoughtful, if you're polysyllabic, in other words, you can use big words, that somehow you're not a real man, because a real man doesn't talk much, a real man just does what he needs to do, a real man works with his hands rather than his head. And women suffer from this in part because if women like Hillary Clinton and other women think that what you need to do is build a strong resume, you need to do the hard work, you need to do your homework, you need to read, you need to be prepared, if all of that is seen as somehow soft and wimpy, then women are gonna lose in that, in that particular discourse. So even if you're a man in that equation, there's no real room for any other version of masculinity other than hyper-masculinity. And that's got to hurt men, too. That's right. That's right. So what many of us have been doing, writers, activists, women, men, pro-feminist men, feminist women, we've been trying to redefine and try to understand a more complex definition of what it means to be strong, especially for men. 
you know, much of this was uh, sparked by the feminist movements over the past several decades of redefining what it means to be a woman. So all the, the gender transformations that have been happening around us, the sexual transformations, the gay and lesbian movements, all of these incredibly transformative social movements have, have helped us to rethink some of these traditional definitions. And yet what Donald Trump represents is a throwback masculinity, a throwback white masculinity where strength was equated with dismissal of women. Women are there, but they're there as objects and not as equals, not as egalitarian relationships, but as, you know, as an appendage of a man. All this throwback, romanticized portrait of America, but so much of it has to do with what is considered to be strong for a man. I think many of us have been trying to expand the definition of strength beyond your ability to dominate others, your ability to out-argue or out-compete your foes. I mean, really? Strength resides in, you know, moral character and compassion and, and empathy and support for other people and working together with other people. But in the gender binary, that's been defined as feminine. It's amazing that we're having this conversation in 2016 that we still have to say that strength just physical strength or the ability to dominate others and be aggressive, successfully aggressive, is somehow the true measure of a man's worth. I mean, are you kidding me? We're still debating this in 2016? I couldn't help but think about the fact that one in five women have reported being sexually assaulted. No doubt there are more women who haven't reported it, but we've come so far in the past few years when it comes to calling out sexual assault on campus and in the workplace. Yes, I think it's a huge setback for the efforts to prevent and reduce uh, sexual assault and domestic violence and sexual harassment and relate teen relationship abuse and all that. To truly transform the culture that produces so much rape and sexual violence and domestic violence, we have to change the social norms, especially within male culture, that, that accept sexist attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors among men. In other words, we have to change how men are held accountable or not accountable within male culture for having attitudes and behaviors that are sexist and, and, and degrading towards women. And, and what happened in this, in this election is we actually elevated to the presidency a man who has a long history of verbal aggression against women, misogynist comments, and now a series of sexual assault allegations. We've actually elevated him to the presidency, which sends a very powerful message that we're accepting, to a certain extent, sexism and misogyny and misogynist behavior and even sexually aggressive behavior as normative behavior for men. At this point, you might be wondering, can anything good come out of this election? There's an awful lot of men who are absolutely ashamed that, we, that, that our country elected Donald Trump, that are actually embarrassed by his behavior, and that hopefully one good thing that'll come out of this election is a lot of men who were in denial up till now about how much sexism was still around, how much women have to suffer on a daily basis. I think a lot of men have gotten a big, strong wake-up call. And I think the positive way to work with that is that we need more of those men not to just silently support women, which is a good thing, supporting women, but they need to start standing up and speaking out. And then we need a whole lot more male voices. And in particular, we need a whole lot more white men who have the courage and strength to challenge not just Donald Trump, but the culture that produced him and the attitudes and beliefs both about white and about masculinity that propelled his rise. At the time of this recording, Trump is in the middle of choosing his administration. He's named five cabinet members so far, and all of them have been white men. No women, no people of color. Of course, white men can be allies to women and people of color, but two of the cabinet members already announced, Steve Bannon and Jeff Sessions, they both have proven themselves to be the opposite of allies. 
Steve Bannon's website, Breitbart News, is known for headlines like, Birth Control Makes Women Unattractive and Crazy, and Hoisted High and Proud, the Confederate Flag Proclaims a Glorious Heritage. He's now the White House senior strategist. And then there's Senator Jeff Sessions. He's consistently voted against abortion rights. He's opposed the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, and he voted against supporting women-owned businesses. He's Trump's choice for attorney general. What would you say to people who are telling you that it's going to be okay, that everything's going to be fine, he's not as extreme as he seems, he doesn't actually believe what he says, there's a system of checks and balances, nothing bad is going to happen, your rights aren't being threatened. What would you say to people who are hearing that type of feedback either in social media or at the Thanksgiving table? We're in for a period of, of reaction and setback. He's going to be making a series of appointments, whether it's the Supreme Court, to the, his cabinet. He's going to be announcing a series of policies, almost all of which are going to be damaging to gender equality, racial justice, uh, gay, gay, lesbian, and bisexual, and transgender rights. I think it's naive to think that somehow he's not going to uh, do what he said he's going to do. I think what he's done is he's been able to achieve a, you know, the presidency, and he's going to be able to mobilize all kinds of right-wing energy at different levels in the society that are going to hurt and set back all these progressive social movements. The question is going to be how many people, in, even in the Republican Party, are going to have the strength to resist the pushback and the efforts to undermine all of this positive stuff that's happened. Because I hope that we do have even Republicans who push back against this. I think this is all about organizing and mobilizing and coming together and speaking up and fighting, both in the streets as a public statement, but it also to elect people at all levels that'll, that'll advance the causes that we all care about. What makes America great is our diversity. What makes America great is the idea that we can unite all these diverse communities together in the furtherance of some you know, historical project of democracy. And I think that makes us great. And I think a lot of white people embrace the diversity rather than resist it. But I think that a certain percentage of the white community, and in particular the white male community, hasn't gotten that memo yet, that they are actually part of the change that has to happen. And, uh, and I think they gave the, the, the middle finger to us as a result. Are we going to rise to the occasion and start challenging and interrupting sexism and racism? And are we going to say that that's not really our business because we're not really sexist or we're not really racist? And maybe we didn't even vote for Donald Trump, and you know, so therefore it's not really our problem. Or are we going to rise to the occasion and say we have certain privileges, especially those of us who are white and heterosexual and male, and, and we're not going to be passive bystanders. We're going to actually we're going to be allies to people of color. We're going to be allies to gays, lesbians, bisexuals, those of us who are heterosexual. In other words, not be passive bystanders in the face of what's been happening in our country. What can we do to help? How can we be supportive? How can we be part of the change? A lot of girls and women were so you know, invested in Hillary Clinton's success, and they saw what happened to a woman who puts herself out there for leadership. Boys and men who don't treat you with respect are showing their own shortcomings, their own weaknesses, their own problems. It's no reflection on you. It's a reflection on them. Mothers need to say that to their daughters, but I think fathers do too. And I think men in the public life need to say that as well. There's millions of men and women across the racial and ethnic spectrum who expect more from men than Donald Trump. And yes, there are some people in our society who are still making excuses for that bad behavior, but we expect more from you than that.
More white women voted for Donald Trump than for Hillary Clinton. There's the feminist sociological perspective, which we heard from Jackson. But I wanted to hear directly from the women who voted for Trump. This is Charlie from Florida. She's a 51-year-old independent. I'm basically a stay-at-home mom. I've had a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old basically at home. I end up voting for Trump. She's skeptical of all politicians, regardless of party. Politicians getting in and taking money and basically lying in their pockets. To you know, I've always been skeptical of that and not Mm -hmm. really trusting of politicians. And I was definitely undecided um, about who I was going to vote for, probably up until the very end. The whole election process were, you know, were just shocking to me. You know, I mean, Trump, for one, calling people names and the different tweets and stuff that he sent out, that was, that was all shocking to me. <laughs> you know, usually people try to cover it up and act civil anyway. I didn't like Charlie that. didn't trust Hillary. I think the real thing for me was the uncovering of Hillary and the different lies. She was obviously lying about different things. That scared me. Not only that, you know, I could, I felt like just even watching her that she was lying, but, you know, everybody around her um, helped cover it up. They destroyed emails. You know, WikiLeaks made a huge difference. You know, a lot of things were exposed that, that you normally don't get to see. You know, like I said, I'm really, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't have all Republican ideas and I don't have all you know, I voted for Obama. I don't, I don't see, I don't see a lot of racism or sexism. I don't see it. I know that it exists and it's ugly and, you know, um, scary, but I feel like, I feel like we're beyond some of the, a lot of those things. I feel like it's, it's sort of been built up that women and minorities or whatever are in danger. And I just don't, I, I think that's, that's a really a manufactured thing. I just, you know, I believe that most people are not racist. Most people uh, are not prejudiced in America. It's a good thing to, you know, to stand up against, against that. I'm scared of the people who are acting out about it and acting like they're afraid of Donald Trump. I don't think there's anything to be afraid of. I mean, I think he there's no way he's he's not going to go unchecked. This is Dina from Utah. She's an economy voter. My name is Dina. I'm 38 years old. I am part of a commercial property management team, and I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. And she voted for Trump. I voted for Trump. I I think that the number one thing for me was the economy. I feel like, you know, our economy really tanked badly into around 2007, 2008. And, you know, it affected me. It affected my family's businesses. Um, I was in real estate and, um, you know, it just greatly affected everybody around me. And, uh, you know, I think that Donald Trump is, he has good vision for America. I am with him on his standpoints on immigration, and I'm with him on uh, just in general his conservative views that he's taken. He wasn't being controlled by anybody. He didn't have to answer to anybody. He was really doing this on his terms. 
I mean, he seems like he's really kind of just speaking off the cuff. He's very blunt. He's indelicate at best. No candidate is perfect. Was I happy to hear some of the comments that he's made? Of course not. Um, And I can't imagine it not affecting you as a woman. He makes it pretty tough to support him some days. But uh, to me, there was an honesty about him. And that was something that I definitely did not see in Hillary Clinton. You know, I, I mean, Trump voters are not racist. They're not white supremacists. They don't hate women. I don't hate myself. You know, we're not blaming the problems of our country on on any particular group. I mean, I'm blaming it more on the Obama administration and, and politics. Like Charlie, Dina didn't like Hillary either. If nothing else, a lot of people just voted for Trump because they didn't want her. I don't, I just don't think she's likable. Um, I don't think that people connected to her. Um, I know a lot of millennials that said that they can't stand her. I mean, I've talked to people that like hate her, you know? And so I think that she just wasn't a very likable candidate. She's definitely no Obama. I would love to see a female president. And I definitely think we will. I think we'll definitely see it in my lifetime. I'm 38. And, you know, the one thing about Obama, although I didn't vote for him and I didn't agree with most of his politics, I do feel very privileged to have been able to see our first black president in my lifetime. That's a wonderful thing. And I would love to see a female president, but I would never vote for somebody based on their race or their gender. I think that millennials in particular, a lot of them that I've talked to, are uh, not as willing to sort of recognize themselves as a traditional feminist because they see traditional feminists as really angry and man-haters and that you can't be, you know, feminine and wear makeup and be into fashion and things like that that are typically considered more feminine things. Um, So I think it's sort of a new kind of feminist. But I do think that it's it's helped overall. And I think that um, there's just sort of an overall movement that women are equals to men. I've heard people say a lot of really terrible things about female Trump supporters. Um, I've heard people say that American women still look to men as their saviors. Um, I've heard them say that we're weak-minded, we're looking for an authoritative father figure to tell us kind of what to do. It's just been super insulting to me. I've also heard, heard people say that the, um, that female Trump voters uh, chose Trump for heavily religious reasons, and I don't think that that's a true statement. It's definitely not true for me. I even read one article that said women who voted for Trump have Stockholm Syndrome. And they weren't meaning it to be funny. Um, and I just don't understand why people are not willing to accept what women keep saying. And what we keep saying is that we voted for Trump because we see the economy as the most important issue that we face today as Americans. And we feel that a business-minded person, not man, person, with a proven track record of success could really be the one to get our economy back on track and moving in the right direction. And so, you know, more than anything, I just really want to stress that, that it wasn't because we're subservient to men or we're stupid or we're not educated. I mean, 
But I mean, I do. I have Bachelor of Fine Arts. I still voted for Trump. I'm not a hillbilly. So I think I really just want to stress that um, that sort of stereotype that's been put on us is just blanketly untrue. That's our episode for today. Jackson, Charlie, and Dina all had strong opinions about this election, and now I want to hear yours. Tweet me at PopCultPirate, hit me up on Instagram at PopCulturePirate, or find me on Facebook by the same handle. This episode was produced and edited by me, Elisa Kreisinger, with research assistance from Kat Maudlin Jackson and Ariana Bosch for Refinery29. We recorded with Paul Ruest. We're working on season two now, so stay tuned and make sure you subscribe to Strong Opinions Loosely Held on iTunes, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you back here soon.